you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now in Fast, a Google glitch. Shares of Alphabet taking a tumble after one analyst raised a red flag over the costs of AI. What the move says about the investment opportunities in the space. Plus, the weight loss wars heat up as Pfizer exits the ring and Lilly ups its game. How the primary players are positioned now and how you should play this sector. And later, rough seas for Carnival. Some clarity on Lucid's latest deal. And one big developer is moving out of Park Avenue. The stories and the trades behind the stocks are coming up. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Julie Beal. We start off with the seemingly unstoppable Apple. The stock hitting a fresh record high during the session today, the third day in a row that it's done that. While the stock closed off the levels, it has risen as much as 3%, even after Jerome Powell seemed to take the wind out of the sails of the big tech trade in his congressional testimony last week. The same cannot be said for some of the other growth stocks, though. Tesla, for example, down nearly 13% for its Wednesday highs, and NVIDIA has shed almost 8% in the last week. So we have asked this question before mm. at least once, if not twice, or three times, or 10 times, or 20 times. <laughs> Is Apple truly the Teflon stock? We will ask it again. Guy Adami, answer once again, please. Today, clearly it is. But historic, go back five years in 2018. Since that point, you've seen probably six, if not seven, 25 to 40 percent peak to trough decline. So Apple actually goes down at times as well. Apple is currently in, and don't at me if I'm off by one, 354 ETFs, of which Apple is one of its top 15 holdings. So in the world of passive investing where money flows in, Apple's going to win to that. So it sort of makes sense that Apple continues to grind higher. Apple wins when people flee other high-growth tech names. The money flows into Apple. At a certain point, though, the, the musical chairs end and there are no more chairs, and that's when Apple goes down. So it doesn't mean it's not a great company, but at 28 times next year's earnings with single-digit EPS growth, single-digit revenue growth, margins that are probably flatlining, if not declining, the stock is expensive here. You have lightened up, Karen. I have. Um, I lightened up last week. That currently the day that was the all-time high, but I can guarantee you, as I said then, it will not be the all-time high if I lightened up. I promise that 100%. But I just feel like the whole space, meaning, you know, FANG, Big Cap Tech, has had huge runs. And the Apple, I, I actually have a little bit higher P.E. than you do on that, remembering the hardware part of the business also, which has a lower P.E., so that means the rest of it trading at an even higher P.E., I don't know. I just felt like I got too much exposure overall. Apple, to me, is the one that um, I guess is, well, it's the most expensive with the exception now of NVIDIA, which is super expensive. But compared to a Meta or a Google, um, I, so I had to lighten. It's painful, but it did. Yeah. Yeah, I'd just say that. So Guy mentioned, you know, high single digits earnings growth, you know, mid to high single digits expected sales growth. So, you know, trading 10 turns over the S&P's multiple, it makes up 7.5% of the S&P. It makes up nearly 13% of the NASDAQ 100. And I think what, what's interesting to me is that we, we mentioned a couple other names that you said have been selling off over the last week that are, are truly expensive. They've seen multiple expansion on things that they haven't realized yet. A lot of excitement about technology that hopefully they will be able to harness over the next few years, um, clearly over the next decade or so, but they pulled forward a lot of excitement around. Apple's not in that 
situation. You know, if this AI thing hadn't happened in the last six months or so, we might have been really excited about spatial computing, about this new Vision Pro that they just launched at their W. But we're not excited about it. And, and it's not in the stock right here. But something's in the stock. And maybe it's a flight to the sort of quality. Maybe because these 43% gross margins have flatlined right there. And we found this sort of equilibrium between their hardware business, which makes up, let's say, two thirds of their revenue and the mix shift with the services and all that sort of stuff. So yes, it's Teflon because it seems to be very defensive, but it's trading at a multiple that it has not in a very long time. And that should make you a bit nervous because if you see how money can come out very quickly of the most loved, exciting stories, ultimately, if we do have a sustained sell-off, they will come for Apple because it will be an easy source of funds. Where do you stand on this, Julie? Because when they did come, you know, when Jerome Powell was very hawkish last week, when they came for the other tech stocks, they did not come for Apple. And so maybe Apple is, you know, the premium is justified and you want to pay up for it because it is safety, you know, in a time of uncertainty. It has been. It was during the bank crisis and it has been in the past week. I, a lot of it, is, I think, is a function, their ability to execute. They just have an uncanny ability to release products that people want. And I think we continue to see that going forward. The real challenge for them is where to find that next incremental $100 million of revenue that they can still generate at a high margin. And I think that's a real challenge for them. Here's a question, though. I mean, do they need to do that at this juncture in time? You know, because they will have new product launches. They've, yeah. they've you know, got this, you know, whole headset kind of thing going on. Um, do, do, they, do they need to do that right now, or can they just sort of wait because they are given the benefit of the doubt in this market environment right now? In terms of the stock price, I yeah. think they can wait. I mean, to me, the really only there are a couple existential risks. The biggest one, obviously, is if things continue to heat up in China, China, Taiwan, obviously, specifically, and if that whole situation starts to um, rear itself in a worse way than it currently is. That could be a problem for Apple, but it's not also a problem that the globe is slowing down, and at a certain point, consumers are going to stop spending on these products. We're not there yet, clearly, but we're going to get there, and Apple will not be impervious to that. You know, it's interesting. Some of the data that we're seeing on consumers in China in particular yeah. of late is, is not great for Apple, especially when, when they've actually put up some decent quarters in China, you know, even as the, they were coming out of zero COVID or are kind of into that sort of period. So those are things that, like, I think should be on your radar if you're invested in the name here, especially if you're thinking about adding to the position or it's a new position right here. And then the other issue, I mean, like Guy mentioned here, I mean, when you think about this company um, and their reliance on the supply chain in and around China, you you know, reshoring, even if it's to other places that have cheaper labor than here in the U.S., it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be a hit to their margins that have been, again, very stable. But those are the sorts of things that you want to start thinking about near a $3 trillion market cap at a valuation that we have not seen in a very long time. How do you think about that? Because in the long run, that's that's the move to make, reshoring. And yes, it's expensive in the near term, but it gives yes. them more. I mean, if China is a political headwind mm. or a potential you know, tape bomb for China, it removes that. Right. At what cost, though? Right. Yeah. As you, I yeah. mean, who knows what cost? And so it's it's obviously a cost to them. and It's a cost they have to pass on to the customers. And then it's I would imagine somewhat of an enormous endeavor from a supply chain cost just to how to get, how to get that up and running smoothly. And I would think you'd have to have duplicate manufacturing for a while, uh, although if anyone can do it, they can. But just one other thing I want to point about Apple. A lot of people feel, well, it's got a great balance sheet. It does have a great balance sheet for sure. Yet they do have some debt. You know, the amount of cash in their overall balance sheet is only 2 percent of market cap now. 
2%. Oh. It seems like it's, right? Right, right. It seems like an enormous amount. And it is a great balance sheet. They do generate tons what of cash. Should, but what should it be? What percentage should that be in order for you to say it is a great balance sheet? Well, I look at something like Google with a great balance sheet, and their net cash is uh, 6%. Ah. So, I don't know. That's kind of a big difference. But is that, I mean, is that a problem? Because they can go to the market. It's not a problem at time. all. They don't need money. They, they, you know, just that buying back stock has been a really great thing for them. They've, done, they've made so much money for shareholders by doing that. Um, it's just the perception of how much cash they have relative to the rest of their business seems a little... Yeah, but uh, one, one point here is, like, like, if that debt to equity ever turned, okay, like uh-huh. the, uh, debt to cash, it's, that would be like a seminal event for a company that's actually bought back over a half a trillion dollars in stock since they instituted a buyback in 2012. And you think about this, we've been talking about a company for years that basically, at best, has had high single digits earnings growth per year. They have managed that massively through those buybacks. So, I mean, at some point, if they get on the wrong side of one of these big technological shifts or so, CapEx and R&D is going to have to ramp up. And let's just say they've made a mistake with spatial computing. Let's just say whatever they're spending, the billions and billions on this, is the wrong platform. And let's say they missed out on the auto or something in and around that. And that is the next $100, $200 billion in revenue over the next decade or something like that. That's how companies like this see their dominance kind of go the way of the dodo. And as long as we've all been in the business, let's call it the last 30 years or so, there has not been a single tech company in that time period that has not been knocked off the pedestal in which they sat for a very long time. It's just happened every single time. You know, you could say that some of us have been calling for that with Apple at every new product, you know, iteration or shift or something like that, at some point it's going to happen. And those are the sorts of things that you want to keep an eye out for, in my opinion. Can I just add one thing to that? The, the ecosystem that they do have, that embedded ecosystem with that cost of switching, is really an extraordinary asset. That It's not reflected in the balance sheet. Right. But it is, I mean, you're an Apple guy. Yeah. Uh, you're an everything guy. You've got all yeah. kinds of gadgets. Yeah. But wouldn't it be hard to switch? Not really. I mean, to be <laughs> honest with you, you know why? Because the, this is the story of China. So they have the everything apps, right? So the hardware is le- le- less interesting to me. So like to me, I think at some point we probably do go that way. And when you think about India's population just crossing that of China's, they are not going to be spending on, you know, uh, on the sort of hardware that like like the rest of the West or uh, Europe spend on. So to me, I actually think there will be some sort of big shift in the next five to 10 years. But trying to trade that in Apple right now is probably hard. But guy, what, what does it tell you about the market environment we are in, where Apple is continuing to make new highs almost every day, seemingly, at the expense of a lot of other tech companies? This is the part of the flight to quality, perceived quality. There's safety in Apple. We can be there. We can hide out there. We've seen this before, and it does end. And when it ends, it ends typically abruptly. Obviously, the broader market, and I don't want to get too crazy here, but for the last week or so, it's starting to show at least some cracks out there. Apple probably wins to that, but a certain point in that timeline, they stop winning to that. Now, we're not even close to that yet, but we've seen that before over the last couple of years. Well, today's NASDAQ weakness could be an opportunity for investors, according to our next guest. City listing big tech and growth stocks as top plays for the, at least the next six months. Let's bring in Stuart Kaiser, the firm's head of equity trading strategy. Stuart, great to have you here on set. Welcome. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, so why at least the next six months? I mean, what, what about the environment? 
high interest rates, higher for longer, spells big tech growth stocks to you? Uh, you know, I think the way we've been approaching the year is you've got very high cash yields, you've got recession risk kind of in the background, and, and that's the main driver of people wanting to be in large cap tech and growth stocks. Essentially, there's a scarcity of growth and people are willing to pay a premium to be in them. So from our perspective, the key to unlocking that trade is you need growth to broaden out, which effectively means recession risk come down. We still have a recession in our forecast, so in our view, that sort of overarching operating environment stays in place, and, and that should be relatively favorable to tech. I think the other thing is, yeah, there's a valuation aspect to this, but these are stocks that have stronger EPS momentum, have you know stronger revisions. There's a, there's a fundamental reason for this beyond just valuation, and you put that all together, and we're, we're still comfortable being in the space, though the risk-reward isn't what it was a few months ago, clearly. You're a sector guy, so I'm not going to ask you specifically about an NVIDIA, let's say, but you do like that sort of AI momentum trade how much of it are you are you worried about the valuations there in particular i mean ai can you can believe it's a real thing you can believe that there's an investment cycle but you may not believe that nvidia should be trading where it is Look, you know, stock by stock, yeah, there might be some stocks that look a little rich. You know, we have about 35 AI winners um, in our quote-unquote basket. The average or the median PE on those stocks is actually down year-to-date because of the massive revisions to both EBITDA and sales. So, yeah, you, you could probably pick out a stock or two here where the valuations got inexpensive, and that's why you diversify. You own kind of a basket of these stocks. And our view on AI is the revenue revisions been better to the market, been better than peers. The EBITDA revisions been better to the market, been better than peers. Valuation hasn't gone crazy. Frankly, what worries us the most is a little bit of fatigue in the sector. We are starting to see long only flows kind of calm down into that space. So while we do like it medium term, we're kind of taking a pause here just to see how that flows dynamic plays out a bit. Stuart, give us a sense. You just said you're starting to see some fatigue, and I think that was evident in some of these big names today. If enough big sellers head for the door at the same time, you get the sort of moves like we had in NVIDIA or Tesla, and it doesn't really matter what the reason. What about complacency? I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of clients who spend time looking at things like the VIX or the VIXN, that sort of thing. I mean, they're at levels that we have not seen since basically February 2020. Give us a sense for sentiment out there, at least in the flows that you guys are seeing. You know, I think sentiment, you know, I wouldn't call it necessarily complacent, but, you know, I think, you know, people are becoming converts, effectively, right? I mean, you enter this year with very deep recession risk. Those have come out. So, you know, I don't know if I call it complacency. I just think, you know, people have kind of risk adjusted how they're looking at things. Um, I would say, even though the VIX is low, if you look at the shape of the VIX term structure, you go out three or five months and the VIX is still a quite high level. So I really think what the market has done is said near term, maybe the risks have come in. We still think there's a considerable amount of medium term risks out there. And that's kind of where the risk is priced. Um, obviously, as you get closer to that, people get a little more concerned and you see people lightening up. So, look, I think people are still hedging. People are still being very careful. And I do think there is risk premium priced. It's just not priced in the next kind of two to four weeks at this point. At least the six, next six months seems like a very specific sort of time frame. So why the, the next six months and what happens beyond that that makes it a little less clear? Uh, well, part of this, we just have to put a number on it, of course. But uh, <laughs> I would say, look, you know, our economists have a recessionary quarter in the fourth quarter. So I think up until you get to that recession data kind of being in front of you, we think people are going to be pretty conservative. A lot of people operate under this rule of thumb that you buy cyclicals when you're in the recession, right? So six months would take us, in our view, kind of to the edge of that recession. And then you have to reevaluate, right? You need to see what the growth data looks like. How deep does this recession look like it might be? How long might it last? And I think at that point, you have a lot of big decisions to make in terms of allocation. But until we see that, you know, that dot on the horizon become a line or something like that, you know, we're going to be pretty careful with the uh, with the allocations. So let me ask you, if that dot on the horizon is a recession, it would seem to me likely then that we see a cut in interest rates, which has been a great ballast for these. How do you weigh those two things? 
Yeah, and if you look at 2024, there's about 150 basis points of cuts priced into 24. Uh, the market's kind of priced out the cuts that were in 2023. And I think that's frankly just because the data has been stronger you know, than it otherwise would have been. I think this is a big debate. You know, are rate cuts good or bad for markets? In our view right now, they'd actually be bad for markets because I think if the Fed is forced to cut, it's not for good reasons. It's because growth data is deteriorating at a pace you're not comfortable with. So I don't think you need rate cuts for the market to work. And frankly, I think if you started to price deeper rate cuts, you you would be concerned about what the Fed's seeing from a growth perspective. What is a sector you absolutely do not want to be in for at least the next year? (laughs) Look, I mean, people have voted with their feet on two sectors this year, and that's financials and energy. So those are probably, you know, two that we'd avoid a little bit. Um, Energy in particular, I'm not an energy expert, but when the Saudis cut production and oil prices don't go up, I get a little bit suspicious. So I think those are the two areas that have been unloved by institutional investors on a year-to-date basis. And, you know, being that we think the investment environment is going to be pretty stable going forward. I think those are areas where we're not, you know, particularly excited by at this point. Stuart, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Stuart Kaiser of City. Julie Beal, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's such a fascinating time period right now. If you think about it, all of us came into this year assuming there would be a recession in the coming weeks. I mean, the Fed was practically hanging out bingo cards for what's going on in the next recession. And it hasn't shown up. It hasn't materialized. And I keep wondering what is going to be the thing that tips us into it. Initially, I think everyone thought it could be, you know, what happened with SVB. And I think we continue to have concerns about what's going on in the shadow banking crisis looming ahead of us. But other than that, it's really hard to see what's going to kind of trip it into recession. So that's the part that I'm the most curious about right now. It's an impressive array of ribbons behind Julie, that third place ribbon. Very decorated, that Julie Beach. It's really It's critical. <laughs> Sorry, Julie. No, listen, I'll, I'll be serious for a second. I agree with them in terms of banks. I think banks have there's some problems here. The bank stocks do not trade particularly well. I'll push back a little bit on energy. I understand the underlying commodity not being all that buoyant. I think the stocks are actually relatively cheap in this environment. All right. Coming up, Alphabet's AI implications, what analysts are saying the trend could mean for long-term results. The details on that call next, plus some fast movers catching our traders' eyes today. Carnival and Las Vegas Sands heading in opposite directions to dive into cruises and casinos ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money, a downgrade on Alphabet nabbing our call of the day. Trophy shares slipping more than 3% after UBS says it sees limited upside ahead in the search engine shift toward AI and the potential impact it could have on the valuable ad real estate in the near term. 
This is really interesting. Um, downgrading to, to a neutral, upping its price target, though, to 132. That's about 11 percent higher than today's close. What do you make of that? We all knew that it, it's a push-pull in terms of uh-huh. AI. Short-term, right? it could be pressure on margins, but longer-term, it could be amazing. What do you think? Well, it's an odd sort of, I, I couldn't quite tell what, what, what was going on there. It's higher price target, downgrade to neutral, a mm-hmm. little bit higher than where we are. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, clearly the rebound in, in Alphabet since that disastrous foray into the public, right. uh, you know, introduction of their AI, which was so much further along and has been so important to them for so long. So they handle that better. I still think just on a valuation basis that... Google is so much more attractive than the other fangs, some of the other AI plays. It's so much cheaper than Microsoft. Um, so could it trade down? Absolutely. There, I, I mean, you don't want to see Bing taking market share. That won't be a great thing. But it's not all bad for Google, right? And the amount of, of computing that people will need, that what their cloud business can do, how it can grow, I understand there's costs with that as well. But I see it as it's opportunity and cost both at not a crazy price. And yeah. Microsoft's price for the same kind of thing is much higher. The other point that the analyst is making, Julie, was that, you know, we, even if there are gains because of AI in terms of revenue, there's also an investment cycle, a spending cycle that is happening. And so they'll be spending a lot more money just to keep up with AI. Um, what's your take here on this? Because from the beginning, you've been sort of questioning what, what the impact would be on its business model. Well, you know, a lot of people first were concerned that this was an existential threat, right? Because if search suddenly gets very good, uh, it's going to be harder for them to generate a lot of revenue from that. And I I think people have kind of come to terms with that uh, challenge. The thing is, is Google has done a really great job in terms of getting its cost structure back in line with where it probably needs to be. And the level of profitability that it has, its ability to take on the investment required for AI is substantial. It's just much better positioned than everyone else. And If you think of all the hype that Microsoft has gotten for Bing and it's moved market share, not one iota, really, it really tells you the strength of the franchise that Google has. Its biggest problem really is regulatory more than anything else. Yeah, no, and I I think that is 100 percent correct. And when you think about a downgrade like this, it's really kind of quizzical on a valuation basis when you look at how much multiple expansion has been like, you know, assigned to, let's say, a Microsoft. When I don't think that anyone thinks that that, that, like there's going to be some renaissance for being, you know, and think about what Microsoft had to do. They had to invest like 12 billion dollars in open AI just to get access, you know, to this sort of technology uh, right now. And that doesn't even cost like the, the cost to compute all this stuff is going up. So to me, I think Google, while, yes, they are going to have some competition from Meta, from, you know, from, really from everybody, if you think about it. Um, ultimately, I think they'll probably have the best product. Their product will evolve and, and really open up a lot of other avenues and other businesses, especially as it relates to Google Cloud. So to me, this one back at 110 or lower, it seems like that's how you want to play AI over a decade mm-hmm. because it's not just making a bet on this. This is the company's evolution. They've mapped this out over the last seven years anyway. It's interesting. I mean, there are a number of reasons to ground, downgrade evaluation. I mean, trades at a market multiple, probably mid-teens EPS growth. So there are a lot of things to like about the stock. Technically, you could say, you know what, maybe it's run its course in the short term. This stock made an all-time high, I think, November of 2021. That recent low of 83 bucks or so. This move to, what, 118 or so, it's a 50% retracement, almost to the penny, as Carter would say, of that range. So it makes sense that we take a pause here. But on valuation, I don't necessarily agree with that. All right. There's a lot more Fast Monday to come. Here's what's coming up next. 
cruises and casinos, boats and bets. Shares of Carnival and Las Vegas Sands both making moves today. We're digging into those trades next. Plus, the weight loss wars continue. One pharma company slimming down and another bulking up on obesity drugs. How the stocks are shaping up ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. laughing. This is not because funny. In the breaks, We're going to talk about a buzz I'm kill. Sorry. This I'm is not sorry. funny no, for Carnival not funny. shareholders. I apologize. <laughs> it's not. Shares <laughs> seven 7.5% despite reporting better than expected Q2 results before the bell. We have conversations during the break and sometimes they spill over. That's the explanation. Uh, the company's seeing strong demand heading into the summer season, but conservative earnings guidance weighing on the stock share seeing their worst day since last November. I mean, the stock is basically a double year to date. A double year to date, guys. Which so is why, is which like, is why this move yeah. makes. I mean, this thing. Put up a longer term chart if we could of the stock. It doesn't look particularly great over the last six months. It looks extraordinary, but it's been a declining chart. It, quite frankly, the business is probably in a decline as well. So the move lower makes sense. There'll be an opportunity to buy the stock again. As a matter of fact, Dan Nathan just showed me a chart. It probably comes in around 13 and a half to 13 and three quarters, but we're not there yet. And with a stock like this, I think you have to be that precise. They have seven and a half billion dollars of debt coming due by 2025. They have a total amount of debt of more than 30 billion dollars, Karen, which is yes. hard to swallow in this interest rate environment. It is, although people seem to still be loving, okay? loving to go. They have some time. They do have the maturity spread out. Well, I don't follow this closely, but one thing from the notes uh, someone can explain to me, they had 107 percent occupancy, which I'm I don't know what You've that means. You've seen those boats? <laughs> Probably light. Is that a stowaway thing? I mean. They're on like the beach deck chairs or something. So um, I don't know what that means. That sounds like a good number. I don't know. So, um, so I mean, people, I, I would have thought actually that we would have seen something lower than 107%. I don't know what it was. Like 100? Like 100, which is where <laughs> they're going to apparently, 100%. <laughs> But good for them. I guess that 100 is an actual occupancy. I don't know. But I, it's a great, great run. They're only back to where they were, you know, two weeks ago, less even. Um, and it's just when you get when things get so hot, I mean, the bar just got too high. I would love to know the answer to that. I wonder if yes, somebody please cancel, tweet us. They, they pay and then they rebook oh. to other people. And so it's oh. more, than more occupancy. Okay. I don't know. Okay. We'll get, we'll get to the bottom we'll get of it, to the I bottom promise, of it. and we'll broadcast that answer. <laughs> Meantime, let's get to the Las Vegas Sands topping the tape today, jumping more than a percent. J.P. Morgan reaffirming its overweight rating on the stock, also raising its price target by a buck, a dollar, excuse me, to $72. Um, guy, this screams Guy Dami. Yeah, it does. And listen, valuation, you can make a compelling case for Las Vegas Sands and win. They obviously, you know, as China's obviously been somewhat deteriorating, they throw money at their economy, it doesn't seem to be working. These stocks have sort of felt that impact. But 
you got to like them on valuation. So I think if you can wrap your head around a slowing global economy, but understand that it's probably still priced in in terms of the valuation, I think you can own both win in Las Vegas stands here. Yeah, Julie? It's it's not for me. I think you have to be, have such confidence in the outcomes in the Chinese market, and I don't right now. I think it's it's uh, you know to be determined whether they continue to be as strong as they would like them to be. It sounds like the government is getting more and more nervous about the health of the consumer. Yeah, I mean, Dan, you're mentioning numbers that were coming out. I mean, over the week, the Dragon Boat Festival, people weren't spending nearly as much as analysts had thought, and that I mean, that's just not a question for. Las Vegas Sands or Wynn or anybody else operating there, but just consumer products in general, too. Yeah, and it, it, you know, it's interesting when you think about some of their exposure here in Vegas. Uh, I mean, like, it sounds like things are pretty good there, but I think some of the corporate behavior and some of the travel and some of the, you know, the big, uh, you know, goings on that used to be there, that's kind of been tamped down. That's kind of a post-pandemic thing. So again, you know, here's a sector that's always traded at a massive discount to many of its kind of consumer-oriented peers in the broad market. And I suspect given all the uncertainty, both internationally and here, it continues to trade that way. Coming up, battle of the weight loss drugs. The gap is closing between Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. Who will take the lead? we got more on that next. And new kid on the block, New York City's largest office landlord, is selling a stake in one hot location. What that could mean for the Big Apple's real estate market. Back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing lower to kick off the final trading week of the first half. The Dow dropping more than 1%, but the index still on pace for its best first half since 1983. The S&P down half a percent, and the Dow virtually flat, now on a six-day losing streak. Slewis stocks closing lower after hitting all-time highs during the session. Among those names, Home Builders, DR Horton, Pulte Group, Palo Alto Networks, and Apple. And Eli Lilly also hitting a record earlier in the session. Speaking of Lilly, the drug maker announcing positive results for its oral weight loss pill. The company saying the treatment led to nearly 15% weight loss over 36 weeks. That is similar to Novo Nordisk's rival treatment. But which of these companies will take the lead in the weight loss race? Let's bring in B of A Securities' Jeff Meacham to explain. Jeff, great to have you with us. I mean, it seems like an oral, it, it seems like a, you know, a pill would be really the holy grail. I mean, it's effective and it's really easy to take, really easy to comply with. That's right, Melissa, and thanks for having me, by the way. Um, so, yeah, if you look at the data for, you know, for Lilly's drug, uh, the weight loss looks pretty impressive. There's still more work to do uh, in phase three. Uh, so that's coming up. And I would say, you know, Novo's drug, Ribelsis, uh, looked, looked good enough, I think. But uh, you know, their, their profile could, I think, be a little bit more improved uh, when you look at tolerability. Is it lower cost to manufacture the pill, do you think? And will consumers actually benefit or no? You know, it's a good question. I would view the orals. We've done a lot of expert uh, work here. The you know orals, I think, will be definitely viewed as you know a drug for the masses, so to speak. But for patients that need a lot more efficacy, um, you know, like like Manjaro, you know, like Wagovi, uh, and like Triple G, there are other drugs out there um, that uh, that could be used in higher BMI patients. But for sure, though, you know, orals, I think, you know, would be higher margin, maybe easier to manufacture. It's Karen. Thanks for being on. So how do you think about the size of this market and where we are in that? Uh, how close? What is peak? What do you think peak is? 
You know, Karen, we're on, on record saying that these drugs are that Manjaro itself could be close to a hundred billion dollar of an opportunity, not just talking about, you know, diabetes and obesity, but including all the studies that Lilly is working on. So sleep apnea, pre-diabetes, chronic kidney disease, liver disease, et cetera. Uh, but officially, though, you know, our numbers are a little bit higher than consensus at the end of the decade and just obesity and diabetes. And that's about 40. So that's not a, that's not a trivial number. Jeff, I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, how people will be staying on these drugs. We've heard so many stories about people going on Azempic and then needing to stay on and having weight rebounds. Do you think that's the case? And is that how they're building out their models? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the, there's a different there's different type of strategy for this. So for sure, some of the drugs that are more efficacious, you know, 20, 25 percent, um, unlikely that pa that patients are on for you know years and years my guess is that you know say six to 12 months on that then they'll go off take some sort of drug holiday and eventually come back because the vast majority of patients actually gain the weight back but an oral though could have a little bit more continuity but the, those the an oral is, is is less effective so 10 to 15 percent versus say 25 plus you know but my my guess here is that um a lot of it will depend on how uh, how accessible the drugs are from payers and insurance companies, et cetera. Um, you're clearly a little bit more optimistic than than your counterparts on Wall Street when it comes to specifically Monjaro. And I'm thinking, I'm just wondering, Jeff, if you're starting to think about the um, the sort of ancillary impacts. I mean, if if all these people are losing weight and reducing their risk for other sort of you know heart disease, high blood pressure, et cetera, what that does to other pipelines. Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, if you look at the, the benefits of these, uh, of these obesity drugs, the savings to the healthcare system could really be really, really pronounced, but we have to have broad access to them. So my guess is that we'll need, you know, cardiovascular outcomes data uh, that further support the profile. Uh, we'll need maybe some pharmacoeconomic uh, analyses. Uh, but in general, though, I would say in the, in the near term, the costs will be driven by the drug the economic benefits uh, will be driven, you know, in the outer years. But for sure, though, it's not just about weight. Uh, you know, these drugs could also lower lipids. They lower, you know, blood sugar, obviously. Uh, they lower blood pressure. So there's a, there's a, a it's more than just uh, the weight loss that's the headline. Economic benefits to the insurers, economic benefits to consumers, that spells to me pain, for some of the pharma companies. And I'm wondering, you know, a lot of these drugs are probably off patent already, so they're not big money makers necessarily, but should we start thinking about that? You know, um, the, uh, so uh, Manjaro was from Lilly is just approved last year in type two diabetes and have some off label use uh, in obesity and could be formally approved in obesity this fall. Uh, but the, uh, the IP goes out, you know, quite a while. Uh, it's not until the, you know, 2030, 2031, uh, that the Inflation Reduction Act discounts start to play out there, though. So uh, these are early cycle drugs, to be honest. Um, Obesity has been, you know, a holy grail type of uh, market uh, with many, many failures. And just in the past two years, have we seen some real step up in terms of innovation and efficacy. So you don't think there's any impact on, on other drug pipelines like cholesterol drugs, heart drugs, et cetera, until... A lot of those are generic, yeah. Ad ...adoption, okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, you could have an indirect effect, though, on other, you know, uh, parts of the, uh, the, say, the diabetes continuum. So, you know, uh, the insulin uh, market, 
and a lot of the uh, the ancillary sort of uh, you know products and services with that sleep apnea, CPAP machines, things of that nature. If we get 20% plus weight loss across the board for a lot of these drugs, you'll see you know volumes decline for other you know uh, let's say lower tech kind of categories in diabetes. Jeff, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Jeff Meacham. Guy, what do you think? Lots to like about Eli Lilly. The reversal today is not great. It's one day. I want to make a big deal out of it. But, you know, they've, I think they just recently surpassed Johnson & Johnson for market cap. I think Eli Lilly is probably close to $440 billion of market cap. And what's going to line up here is it's going to be a half a trillion dollar company, in my opinion, along with a $500 stock price. They'll split five for one. People will get geeked up. And their total adjustable market in this space alone means they could probably double EPS over the next couple of years, which makes a valuation that seems rich now not nearly as, um, I think, scary for people. Yeah, and when you listen to him, he said it could be a $100 billion market. And that, you know, just so when we started covering this story like uh, five months ago or something, yeah. and then it was like maybe $50 billion or something like that, when you think of the split screen that we had over the weekend between the, the story about Lilly's trials with his oral and Novo's and then Pfizer, Pfizer. this morning, it's pretty amazing. Novo and Lilly are both $30 billion revenue companies. And to Guy's point, they're going to get a lot of the EPS benefit, especially if it is $100 billion. And this oral thing is a game changer. I, I just think, again, it's going to drive down the cost of the drug, and it's going to make it that much more accessible um, over the next couple of years once it does get Will it drive down the cost, though? Yeah, I should, don't know. It should do. Okay. I, I, I don't well, know. Well, no, but think about it. It's very expensive to actually make the injectable and deliver the injectable. It needs to be, um, you know, put in, uh -huh. in cold storage right. and all that sort of stuff. So it's just going to be a lot easier across the whole supply chain. Yeah. What do you think of the valuations here? I mean, if, if one drug is $100 billion. Yeah, well, the game. it does change the game. Getting there, though, in a few years, yeah. I, I mean, uh, it's, you know, I sold Lily way too soon and Novo as well. Um, and then Pfizer, Pfizer did have one drug that, that they're going to stick with, but it's yes. twice a day pill. Which I, th I feel like the, we don't know who else is out there yet, I think. I mean, obviously, this is the holy grail. So I don't think people leave it at that. Okay, Phil, you know, Lily. Right, they got and, it. And right, we're going to leave. We're not, right. <laughs> so, um, I got out too soon. I guess that, that, that if I owned it now, I probably would sell it. What does that tell oh, me? Oh, you're not what buying it now. That, well, that's what tells yeah. me what I should do. <laughs> All right, coming up. Luxury EVs, the deal that had shares of Lucid rising today, and options traders are plugging in next. And throughout June, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month. Here's the head of Bank of America's digital team. You never know what someone experienced that morning before they showed up to work or what they're dealing with in their personal life. So when we all show up to work, we should do so with grace and with compassion for one another. Even now in 2023, the struggle for our LGBTQ teammates, family members and friends continues to be very real. It's important to take a moment during Pride Month, but frankly all year round, to celebrate the victories and show our support for the ongoing struggle. It's a hugely exciting deal where we have a technology uh, supply partnership, a true long-term partnership between Lucid and Aston Martin, where Lucid's technology is going to propel Aston Martin into a new era of electrification. And for us, it's um, a validation point of the supremacy of our technology. 
That was Lucid CEO Peter Rawlinson on Closing Bell Overtime earlier today. Shares of the EV maker rising as much as 15% today after it announced it will provide powertrain and battery systems to British luxury car company Aston Martin. Stock finishing well off its highs, but option traders are betting on big gains ahead for Lucid. Myco's got the action, Mike. Yeah, Lucid was one of the busiest single stocks today, 11th busiest. Actually, it traded more than three times its average daily call volume in the busiest contract where the weekly six strike calls, we saw just under 50,000 of those trade for about a quarter of contract. Buyers are obviously betting that the slight bump we saw today could actually accelerate by the end of the week. But I would also point out this is a stock with a fairly substantial short interest, and it's obviously seen a big decline. So some of this could also just be expecting some kind of a rebound. Yeah. Guy, what'd you make of this move? Uh, it should have been a bigger move, quite frankly. I mean, we're talking about a stock that recently made a multi-year low at 545 or something. I mean, the bounce was somewhat anemic. Now, people could be playing for a huge percentage bounce. I think it'll be short-lived, although I love Coco Beware on that great Friday night show at 530. What do they call it? Options action. Tune in. People. It's only been on for more than a decade, well more than a decade at this point. Um, Mike, thank you. Mike Co. for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, talk about being in the green. New York City's largest office landlord surging after offloading a major piece of real estate. What the deal could mean for the office-based sector ahead. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of New York's largest corporate landlord, SL Green, soaring today after selling its 49.9% stake in a prime Manhattan office building. The deal for 245 Park Avenue, coming at a $2 billion valuation, provides a major boost to New York's struggling corporate real estate market. Karen, you're following this very closely. Yes. I mean, there, so there's signs of life here, maybe. So that's, this is a, it's a very good property. Uh, it was a decent price. And so if we start to see transactions, then we'll start to see companies improve their balance sheet, like SL Green. They've got a ton of debt, so there's a lot of sort of turbocharge to the equity when they're able to help their balance sheet and get more life, right? So uh, I think we'll see that again and again. If, if we start to see it more, it sort of begets more. And then also we start to see some financing markets open, which is really important to them. We did see Boston Properties do a bond deal in May, but they are sort of the cream of the crop. They may be the only one who was able to do that at that time. Any transactions are good. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we talked to Jonathan Litt of Landon Buildings, and he often cites cell phone data. And in New York City, the cell phone data has not been so bad, better on a relative basis than some other cities. San Francisco is right, a disaster. Right, right, yeah. Exactly. But this, I mean, so even with that, this deal is, it's not seen as sort of like, this is an exception because this this market is a premium. I mean, it's still good for the overall sector. Or is I it think it is specific to well, great the, properties in in relatively strong markets. Well, they're priced like now any properties. It's not priced like a great property, and maybe we'll start to see some. I think for San Francisco really is quite a disaster. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. But I think just any transactions, and you and you see one. Everyone's sort of waiting. Well, I'm going to wait till they get cheaper, cheaper. Well, now someone stepped in. And that makes people think, well, okay, I need to step in. Yeah. Julie, your thoughts? Yeah, it's a pretty stagnant market right now. It's the same in, you know, the residential markets where everyone is kind of sitting on their hands. But, you know, we know that we have a lot of refinancing that has to happen. And so these transactions kind of help move things along because otherwise I worry a lot about future defaults on buildings in certain markets. I think New York is okay, but for sure I agree there are other markets, not just San Francisco. Yeah. Guy? 
premium location, I think the a lot of people are saying $700 a square foot was sort of the mean-ish. This went for north of $1,100 a square foot. So it's a good thing, but is this just a bounce in an oversold condition? That's what you have to come to grips with. So I think that's probably exactly what it is, big volume day today. I wouldn't say faded necessarily, but short leash for sure on the long side. All right, up next, final trades. Do not miss a brand new podcast hosted by our own Karen Fireman, How She Does It, launching today. A show about finding your power, building your place in the world, and discovering what it means to truly make an impact. Available on hermoney.com and on Apple Podcasts. Karen, Melissa, this is quite a journey for you. It has been quite a journey. So I've wanted to do this for a while. You know, I have these occasional women dinner parties. Mm -hmm. And I love them. I love meeting all these women who are in very different fields and learning about their careers, how they got there, what did they do to, what, what sort of hardships do they overcome? None of them have a straight path. And I was very, very happy that my first guest was Melissa Lee, who I think, uh, you know, someone I love, someone I love to talk to as well, and someone whose story I find so compelling. Not where you thought you'd end up, Certainly not where your parents thought you'd end up. <laughs> and yet, and yet, here you are. And I just, I feel like there's so many things to learn from women who've done different things, pivoted, changed, failed, picked themselves up again. One of our guests is Julie Wainwright, who is the CEO and founder of The Real Real, which I also learned about hardship there. But to, you know, hear her story of how she was unhirable and yet figured out, all right, I got to build my next job. Yeah. And so I, I'm fascinated by these stories, and I hope other people like to listen to them, too. I can't wait to listen to the rest of it. I am honored to be the first episode, so I hope you all will check it out. I know Guy and Dan. Favorite podcast, podcast store. Yeah. Aside from their podcast, of course. Time for the final tray. Let's go around the horn. Julie. Uh, I'm looking at Google again. You know, you can own a nice monopoly right now and a call option on AI in the future. Karen. Julie, I love that trade. I have a different one. CVS, though, was my final trade the other day. I think it's just too cheap for all the businesses it has in healthcare space. Dan. Yeah, for all you oldies, just go to the podcast store, smash <laughs> the subscribe button, how she does it. That's it. Do it now. QQQ, I'm a seller. I think that's awesome, K-Fine. Great picture, by the way. Delta Airlines breaking out here, Melms. Look at that. All right. Nice call on that one. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. 
Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or planned to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.